You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Welcome to SpyCast. My name is Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian and curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. Every week, SpyCast explores the world of intelligence and espionage by bringing you in-depth conversations with spies, spy masters, intelligence officers, and authors. We explore the stories, secrets, tradecraft, and technology of a world that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. Welcome to this week's episode of SpyCast. This is a big one, a very big one, our 500th episode and 15th anniversary. We've come a long way since we began back in 2006. It's quite fitting then that in this week's episode I speak to our very first historian and curator, Alexis Albion, who's currently the curator for special projects here at the International Spy Museum. Alexis actually left us way back when to be in the 9-11 Commission report where she was the central researcher on the CIA and US counterterrorism policy before 9-11. Hang on, did you just say what I think you said? She was the central researcher on the CIA? Yup. I know, what the heck, right? We've been sitting on this story all this time. Episode 500 is a good time to thank two of the behind-the-scenes, unsung technical heroes, Mike and Memphis, who have been involved with more spy casts than anyone else. They are awesome, they are great guys, and they rock. Other people who have been involved in the content side of Spycast have included Peter Ernest and Chris Costa, our former and current executive directors, as well as my other predecessors in the historian and curator role, Thomas Bogart, Mark Stout, and Vince Houghton. The show, of course, would be nothing without our guests who have contributed their time, expertise and experience to help educate, inform and occasionally entertain the public on the vitally important matters of intelligence and espionage. Sometimes this past year I have felt like Churchill and that he got the job he had always coveted but under the least auspicious circumstances. It has been emotional people but we are getting there. Here's to the next 500. Slange. I think it's quite fitting that this is the first in-studio podcast that I'm doing with you as the very first historian and curator here at the International Spy Museum. Right. So, yeah. yeah. Thanks for taking the time. I'm more than happy to do so, Andrew. And it's nice to see you in the flesh. <laughs> so I think the first thing, like, I guess it's one of those classic 9-11 questions. Where was Alexis Albion? on the morning of Tuesday, September 11th, 2001. Right. Well, of course, I do remember it very well. I think one thing that most people remember about the day was absolutely gorgeous, beautiful, 
day. I was in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I was in graduate school at the time, working on a PhD in international history. I had a friend, a fellow grad student staying with me at the time, actually, and we went for a run together by the Charles River. And I remember it being absolutely beautiful, perfect sort of day, early fall day for a run. We got back to my apartment. I took a shower. <laughs> and then when I got out of the shower, it was probably around nine o'clock, 9am, something like that. And my, my, my friend said, I heard something on the radio about a plane flying into the World Trade Center. I remember thinking, gosh, that sounds very visual. Let's turn on the TV. And then of course, we spent the next three hours or so just watching TV and watching it unfold. I mean, one of the things that I recall is I really had no idea who Osama bin Laden was. My colleague was actually a fellow historian who did Middle Eastern history, uh, Middle Eastern legal history. I think she actually had knew something about Al-Qaeda and bin Laden. But I just say that because I guess I thought of myself as a pretty informed person, but I had never heard of, of bin Laden. And I think m most Americans really hadn't. So that kind of shock of what was happening and then just to be learning about this threat that apparently had been around for a while was really, you know, it was sort of overwhelming. And as I think it was for many Americans, many people around the world. How did you live out the rest of that day as a student of international history, as a human being or as an American or all of the above? Yeah, I remember sort of around midday sort of thinking, OK, it looks like it's over the attack because as anyone remembers, you know, things kept happening and we didn't know how if there was going to be another attack in another location. But I remember around noon, it seemed like the attack was over the towers had both fell, fallen and I was supposed to have a lunch, a brown bag sort of lunch discussion that day. And I remember thinking, should I go or shouldn't I? I don't know. I think it seemed like the world had changed. So is my regular schedule still happening? And I remember thinking, well, I'll sort of, I think I'll go. I remember walking outside. I remember the streets seemed so empty in Cambridge. I remember, I, I believe they were who had fighter planes over Boston and, and I, you could kind of hear them in the sky. I remember sort of walking to this lunch appointment. I think a few of us turned up and we sort of just, as actually a group of people involved in the Center for National Affairs. And I think we just kind of sat around and ate our sandwiches and, and talked and uh, everyone was kind of in a bit of shock. And I do remember getting together with some friends that evening to have a drink in a bar. <laughs> it seemed important, I think, to kind of keep those human connections and do that kind of thing that day. When did you find out about the connection to Boston, Logan Airport? I don't know. That's a good question. I don't remember. I actually do not remember. I don't remember if that came out that day or, you know, I think we were all sort of pinned to the, to the news over the next week or so as more information came out. I honestly just don't remember when those kind of specific details did start to come out when we started to learn the name Mohammed Atta and, and so on and the people connected with the flight from Boston. I don't remember those details exactly, but you're right. Yes, there was that connection with where I was living, which made it all sort of seem more personal and more eerie. Yeah. Did you have any friends or family in New York? I did have friends in New York. I remember trying to make a call that day to see if he was all right. People I went to college with who died that day in New York City. I think actually the most, the closest connection in a way was one of my students who I was 
I was her thesis advisor that year. She was a senior at Harvard. Her cousin died that day and she had been very, very close to her. They were almost like sisters. And she was really devastated. I remember I, we kept our meetings when we would meet to talk about her her thesis. And, you know, she really wasn't sure if she wanted to do a thesis that year. And I said, that's fine. Let's just let's just meet. Let's just chat. Let's just talk. And we were quite close and we got along very well. And yeah, I mean, I just... I think that was really my closest connection of just seeing somebody who was, had been really, really affected by that. And I did convince her to, to carry on and do her thesis. And that was important and that she, her cousin would, would want her to do that. So, Besides being charming and intelligent, which is a good enough reason to chat, one of the reasons that we're having this particular conversation is with regards to intelligence in 9-11. And what the listeners can't see is at the moment a copy of the 9-11 Commission report is on the table between Alexis and I. So can you just walk us up to how you get involved with right. the 9-11 Commission? Well, I left graduate school in 2002, a year later, actually to take a job at the International Spy Museum, which had just been built and it just opened and they were looking for an, an historian and I was the very first historian. So I'd moved to DC in 2002. The 9-11 commission was sort of just getting set up in, I, I think, early, there were a lot of discussions about it, obviously, and it, the legislation went forth and to set that up think in early 2003. And it was in February 2003 that I got a, an email actually from Philip Zellico, who had been uh, appointed the executive director of the commission. He had been a um, professor at Harvard at the Kennedy School of Public Policy, who I had gotten to know. I'd actually done one of my fields of study with him at the Kennedy School. I was in the history department, but I was really interested in policy. And so I wanted to do a field of study outside of the history department. And so I studied with him doing a field in American foreign policy. Philip is a historian himself. He was very close to one of my advisors, Professor Ernest May, uh, who had also sort of had one foot in the world of academia and the world of policy and had been very interested in intelligence. So it was, I think, my association with both of those men helped get my, put my name in the hot as somebody who might be good to work on the commission. So I got an email from Philip. I actually happened to be in Cambridge at that time. I said, yeah, let's talk. I went over and met in a coffee shop. He asked me if I'd like to serve on the commission, told me something about it, something about what I would be doing. I remember taking the train back to DC and calling him back the next day and saying, yes, I'd certainly like to be considered. I'd, I'd be very interested in doing that. It's, I don't know why I took so long to think about it, but I think it was sort of a shock. I hadn't expected that to happen, but you know, it was kind of a no-brainer when you get an opportunity to take part in something like that. Yes, of course, I was going to do it. But I think apart from my association with Philip Zellico, I think one of the very interesting things about the commission and about the commission's report was that from the very beginning, it had been the vision of the chair and vice chair of the commission, that was Tom Kane and Lee Hamilton, to produce a report that that would be read. And that sounds like something very obvious, but it wasn't at the time. You have to remember that commission reports and blue ribbon reports and all this kind of thing 
often produced these commissions produced reports that then sat on shelves and accumulated dust and were not written really with the public in mind. But from the very beginning, the chair and vice chair knew that the work of the commission was important for informing the public. Obviously, the commission reported to the president, but I, I, I think they really saw this as a commission whose work really needed to serve the American public. So where was an, there was a, a vision of producing a report that would be read by Americans, that would be you know, studied in every high school in America that would be in every library that people would buy in a bookstore and read. And so Philip Zelico, who was the executive director when he was looking for staff, I think he was really thinking about staffers who could write, who could do research and write a compelling narrative. And as a historian himself, that's something he did. And I think he was attracted to people who had that kind of training as well as I did as a historian. I had another colleague of mine who I worked with was also had a, a PhD in history and in journalism. And we bore a lot of the burden of the, of the writing of the report. So I think that emphasis on, on writing and writing clear, compelling narrative was there from the very, very beginning. And I want to dig into your work on the report a little bit more, but before that, how did you first get interested in studying intelligence and what did you study? I actually ended up writing a dissertation on Anglo-American relations during the 1960s, and I was particularly interested in the perception of intelligence. So uh, what the British public and American public knew and thought about what their intelligence agencies were doing and responded to that and how the intelligence agencies responded to the public as well. How did I get interested in that? Again, I think I was kind of serendipitous. I went to Harvard to study with a, a wonderful professor of international relations, Akira Irie, and then again, Ernest May was also my advisor, and he was very interested in intelligence. I did a seminar with him. I knew about his interest in intelligence. It seemed interesting to me. I had done a seminar where I kind of dug into that, and I really had so much fun, I think, <laughs> learning about that topic and the sources and so on. So I, I kind of got interested in that. I was really interested in the period, uh, the decade of the 1960s, which seemed such a fascinating period to me. I'm an American, but I actually grew up in England and I thought, hmm, Anglo-American relations. Yes, that's interesting because that's really me. So I kind of connected the US-British area with the intelligence and the 1960s and just kind of kept running with it. And where did you come out on the other side, the main findings or the main conclusions of your research? Yeah, I mean, I was really interested in this idea of the perception of intelligence and I think one of the interesting conclusions was looking at how the extent to which the CIA cared about their reputation, about their image and MI6 as well, and how they might try to actually shape that perception. And I think what came out of it for me was that a real importance, I think, of public oversight of intelligence in a democracy to kind of have a really, really big theme, which ended up fitting in unbelievably well with actually the work of the 9-11 Commission, one of these eerie things where you sort of think it was my fate to do this. But I got very, very interested, I think, in this idea of how important it is for the public to understand what their government is doing in terms of intelligence. And it's important for a democracy to recognize that that public support of intelligence activities is really essential. 
Just pivoting back to the 9-11 Commission report, so you were brought in specifically to look at the intelligence angle? The mandate that the Commission was given, I mean, it was very specific what the Commission was asked to do, and at the same time incredibly broad. They were asked to look at the 9-11 tax, but the circumstances surrounding it, why it had happened. They were supposed to be looking at the context in which it happened, so looking both before and actually a little bit after the 9-11 tax. And the law that actually authorized the commission to do this specified specific areas in which the commission was supposed to do investigations, everything, some sort of from border security to aviation to the work of the FBI, all sorts of areas. And so the way that the commission staff was organized was in a number of different teams to look at these very different areas. And I was assigned to a team that was looking at counterterrorism policy, U.S. counterterrorism policy before 9-11. And the way we organized ourselves on that team was different individuals were put in charge of looking at different agencies, different departments. And I was assigned, I was given the CIA. So what was the CIA doing before 9-11 to counter the threat from al-Qaeda and bin Laden? So that was really my portfolio. And yes, I was given this. And I think because I had already done some obviously research and intelligence in the 1960s, not in the 1990s, so it was different. But I guess I was all sort of familiar with structures and jargon and vocabulary and things like that. So you're focusing on the CIA. So you mentioned the 90s there. It's mainly the 90s that you're looking at. Why did this happen? We were supposed to be looking at when did the CIA, when was the agency aware of this threat from al-Qaeda? When did they learn about bin Laden? What did they know about him? So, yes, I think we started looking kind of in the early to mid-1990s, which I believe the, the CIA had set up a particular unit within the counter-terrorist center focused on bin Laden and I think, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't remember exactly the date, but it was the mid-1990s. And so you had to pick a starting point at some place. So it was that obviously going all the way up into the 9-11 itself. And then again, we also looked a little bit after 9-11 as well, the response to it. For listeners that either weren't born at the time or, the, or whose memories are rusty, just give us like a primer. What was the CIA up to before 9-11 in the time period that you've discussed? Right. So, I mean, the agency was really on top of this, I think, more than any other part of the U.S. government. As I said, the agency had was aware of bin Laden in the mid-1990s. They, they saw him mostly as a financier of terrorism. He was obviously a wealthy Saudi who had the money to finance terrorism. So they had their eyes on him and actually set up a special unit within the counter-terrorist center, which already existed, to specifically look at bin Laden. It was sort of a bit of an experimental station. They called it Alec Station, but they were really focused on bin Laden. So they were investigating, keeping their eyes on him, looking for connections. And of course, that grew and they were following him to the extent that they were able to follow his uh, movements. When he moved to Afghanistan, for example, they had his eyes on him. And so, yeah, the agency was on top of this, as I said, I think more than any other agency and actually did start to even target him in the second half of the 1990s and came up with a number of different operations to try to target him 
to either capture or at a later point even kill him. Uh, these obviously didn't <laughs> happen for a number of different reasons, but there was quite a bit of activity going on in the agency on that front. And what did you find? Did you find that the people in Alex Station were obviously just by definition of their purpose, they were very focused on this issue. How far up the hierarchy did you find this interest going? I mean, it went all the way up to Director of Central Intelligence, George Tennant at the time. And and of course, even over the at the National Security Council, where Richard Clark was the counterterrorism chief there. He had been working with counterterrorism for the Clinton administration and stayed on actually during the Bush administration as well. So, no, we certainly see that focus on terrorism, on transnational terrorism, and then increasingly the focus on al-Qaeda and on bin Laden himself increasing during the late 90s. And it certainly became the, the interest of George Tennant and of Richard Clark and, yes, became an obsession, I would say, leading up to 9-11. You know, leading up to 9-11, George Tennant, in fact, announced the agency was at war with al-Qaeda. They certainly saw that as a, a primary, if not the primary threat. And George Tennant's got quite an interesting take in all of this in his book at the centre of the storm, but he's quite an interesting figure because he's there for the transition from Clinton over to Bush. So as someone that studied this and looked into it. What's your read on George Tennant? Like, I mean, the director of Central Intelligence obviously has a very important role in all of this. So what's your take on him? Yes. Well, he's a very interesting man. And, <laughs> and I think that fact that he stayed on the job and was there for quite a long period of time and after 9-11 as well is really very important. I said that, and I do believe that the CIA was doing more than any other part of the US government to counter the threat from Al-Qaeda and from bin Laden. But I think it's important to say that despite all of that and despite all their activities, they still failed. In my opinion, they failed. Because is it not the job of our intelligence community to protect us, American citizens, from exactly what happened on 9-11, from attack. That is the job. It is to provide that warning to keep us safe. That's, I think, what we expect our intelligence community to do, quite rightly. I'm not saying that's an easy thing to do at all. And the fact that this country was attacked on 9-11 and around 3,000 people died, I think means that we, we failed. It was an intelligence failure there. I think George Tennant would not see it that way. <laughs> and he did not see it that way. I think he, his argument was, but we did, we were trying so much. Look at all, look at everything that we did. And that's absolutely true that they were doing an enormous amount and they were putting a lot of effort into that. But I think they still failed. Now, I think the contrast here, you might look at the FBI. So the FBI certainly failed as well <laughs> with regard to 9-11. FBI is responsible for domestic intelligence. There were 9-11 hijackers who were in the country, in the United States before 9-11. Some of them had been known by the Bureau, known about their terrorist connections. Why did we not know they were there? Why were we not following them? Why did we not know about the plot? And I think it's the FBI failed in that respect. But Robert Mueller, who was the director of the FBI, came on board as director on September 4th of 2001, literally a week before the attacks. And I think it was much easier for him, I think, to say, look, you know, 
the Bureau is going to make some changes. And in fact, by the time the commission was set up in 2003, Mueller was able to come and talk to the commissioners and say, these are the changes we're already making. We're shifting the focus of the Bureau more toward counterterrorism, more toward domestic intelligence much more focused on criminal activities. So I think in that way, there was a, Mueller was able to talk to the commissioners and say, look, we're already focused on this. And so the recommendations of the report with regard to the Bureau are actually quite few and basically say, keep doing what you're doing. There was a whole question out there, I think people may not remember or may not have recognized, as to whether we needed to have, the Bureau needed to be completely reorganized. In fact, maybe we needed a new domestic intelligence organization, whether the Bureau was going to be basically taken apart. But I think Mueller was able to come in and say, look, you know, those mistakes weren't my Bureau, right? I'm taking the Bureau forward into this sort of new age of terrorist threat, and we're going to be focused on, on countering that threat. George Tenet didn't have that same ability <laughs> to do that. And I know there was quite a lot of resentment with regard to the commission's recommendations about the CIA and about um, the role of the DCI as well, the Director of Central Intelligence, because exactly because I think George Tenet would have said, look, we were doing so much. What more could we have done? And I think that inability to admit failure. <laughs> I think that was a failing of George Tennant to be able to sort of say, look, you know, we made mistakes. There was more we should have done. And I think that kind of helps to explain why the recommendations of the report regarding the intelligence community, a lot of them actually are focused on the role of the DCI and creating this role of the Director of National Intelligence, which basically took away the part, the role of the DCI in being in charge of the community, the intelligence community more generally. I think that's just, you know, that has something to do with the personality of George Tennant in wanting to stay on at the CIA and in wanting to defend the activities of the agency, which are admirable, but at the same time not being, I think, to recognize that actually, you know, there were real failures and there were changes that needed to be made. He's an interesting character. I see him as somebody who wanted everybody to like him. <laughs> so one of the interesting things in our investigations and in the interviews we were doing was there were certain projects or certain operations which had been proposed and then ended up not happening. And it was it took some digging to figure out, you know, why didn't they happen? Who made that decision? We often found is that at the working level, people at the CIA, people thought that, you know, the operation had been shut down at the White House level, I mean, at the National Security Council, because George Tenet was telling them, look, you know, I told them, you know, we got to do this, but they don't want to go ahead. You know, it's, it's, you know, you guys are great, but the higher ups aren't going to go with it. And then when we talked to people <laughs> at the National Security Council, they say, George told us, it was too risky, we shouldn't go ahead. And so I think in many ways, Tenet was trying to sort of play it both ways and make everybody happy. And, and actually, through the work of the commission, I think there were people at the working level at CIA whose opinion of George Tenet changed and said, wow, uh, I thought he was on our side, but I find out that actually he was saying something quite different, perhaps, to the policy guys over at the White House. So I think he's a very charismatic, obviously very bright guy, an interesting person. Of, but yeah, I think in many ways a flawed, a flawed individual, as are we all, of course. 
I have noticed that uh, since he left that position, <laughs> since the Bush administration has ended, he has been a little bit more <sighs> candid, I would say, <laughs> in some of the things he has said. Clearly, it might be easier to say that when you're out of office. I wouldn't say he's changed his story exactly, but I think he's been a little bit more forthcoming and clearer in some of the things he has said. One of the things that I'm trying to get a sense of here is, like, what was your read on where the buck would stop? I'm just thinking, like, if I was George Tennant playing devil's advocate and I hear this, I'm like, well, if I'm playing for a basketball team and I'm out there sweating buckets and screaming at my teammates to help me win the game and they just don't want to go along there's only so much that I can do unless the coach steps in i.e. the president and the president is the he's the ultimate source of the person that's meant to protect the American people so does more of the blame really lie on the doorstep of Clinton and Bush as opposed to Tennant or I mean I don't want to like scapegoat someone but I'm just trying to get a sense of Harry Truman's phrase, like, where does the buck stop? Or is it just systemic failure? Or can it be both? It can... I think it can be both. I, I mean, these are all really interesting questions. And I think things that you can discuss endlessly. I mean, I can sort of look at specific examples where, yeah, the buck stops at the president. So in the late 1990s, 98, 99, there are specific occasions when the CIA went, has they call eyes on bin Laden, right? Are they actually had reporting coming from tribal sources in Afghanistan that they had seen bin Laden, they knew where he was. And when this intelligence is deemed to be, the sources supposed to, you know, are good, are solid, this information gets spun up all the way on a number of occasions, all the way to the White House. And there are, and there's a, you know, an emergency meeting of the principals to discuss whether or not they should lob a cruise missile and try to take out bin Laden. These are all documented in the report on a number of occasions. And there's discussion amongst the principals there, that the Secretary of State, Defense, George Tenet is at the table as well. And of course, Bill Clinton, this is during the Clinton administration. And ultimately, it is the president who gets to decide whether or not they should go ahead or not. Now, obviously, with the advice of all his advisors there, and George Tenet is an incredibly important source of advice at the table there. You know, one of the big discussions about that role of the DCI, of the Director of Central Intelligence, that was Tenet, was, is he acting in the capacity of a policy maker or not? And, you know, George Tenet would always say, I don't make policy. I just give information, right? That's my, I'm the advisor to the president on intelligence. And yet at the same time, right, you know, it's really sort of hard to differentiate those two roles. If the president is turning to his director of CIA and saying, what do you think is the likelihood that bin Laden is in this location right now and is going to be there for the next, you know, 24 to 48 hours, the amount of time I need to spin up those cruise missiles and try to take him out. And he says, yeah, you know, 50% chance, 25% chance. I mean, that is influencing actions, right? <laughs> so I think, you know, we had lots of discussions about those roles and whether you could really differentiate them. And, and Tenet was always saying, look, it's not my role, right? It's really that I don't make policy. In that situation, you could say, look, the president's the one who said, don't go. It's too risky. 
can't do it. Don't know if he's going to be there. Don't know if he trusts the sources. You know, collateral damage. Think about the international repercussions. All those many, many, many different considerations to be made, and there are considerations that the president is making at his level, which somebody, you know, director of central intelligence isn't looking at. He's probably not thinking about the domestic repercussions. Perhaps if we and if the United States. Tries to take out Bin Laden. He's not actually there. You end up killing hundreds of people in Afghanistan, and you take out a mosque. I mean, there's there's lots of different risks that are involved, and that is the role of the president to be weighing all those up and deciding. Because ultimately, the blame or the glory, I suppose, is going to be on on him. So I think it's a really it's a complicated question, but I guess you know there is some. Clarity at saying the buck stops on the president's desk, and I think you can look at a situation like that and say, and look at the different roles that individuals have in that situation. But it is the president who says, if he says go, do it, then the Secretary of Defense goes back and tells people, and they spin up the missiles, and you know people are going to die. And the president says no, don't do it, then. It's not, and perhaps the United States missed an opportunity to take out Bin Laden years before 9/11. <laughs> we'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. I mean, it's a really fascinating issue. One of the things that strikes me just when you were speaking there, like if you look at George Tenet, if you look at directors of central intelligence, a lot of the ones that we can think of just off the top of my head, they can fall into the Donovan's Disciples camp, people like Bill Casey, people like Colby, people that were in this OSS, people that were in the war that, you know, later the... Be, go on to be DCIs. Then there's like the senior military officers like Stansfield Turner, David Petraeus. But George Tennant's neither of those. Like how, for people that are a bit rusty on this, give us like a pen portrait of Tennant and more specifically, how does this figure become the DCI? Yeah, I believe Tennant's background had been on Capitol Hill, right? His background had been 
as a staffer, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm trying to remember. I think he'd been yeah. staffed the Senate uh, Intelligence uh, Committee, right? So he, someone who's much more probably than the individuals you mentioned, understanding how government works, right? And the legal side of things and also sort of understanding the policy side of things, those relationships, the, the structures, the institutions. Then he comes over to... See, I believe he spends some time as uh, deputy director of central intelligence and becomes uh, the DCI. So I think he was very familiar with how policies work, right? So he does have a very different background. And I think it's one that fits in very well with what we've been talking about as his understanding of how to the relationships with people, right, seems to be a very important part, I think, of his work. And, you know, clearly somebody who had been kept on by George Bush, right, after having served in the Clinton administration, that doesn't happen so often. It's usually seen as more of a kind of a political position and that the new president wants his or her, their own person in place at the CIA. And I think it you know, obviously speaks to, to George Tenet and his personality that Bush had confidence in him and kept him on when he became president and then after 9-11 as well. And, you know, I think it's important to talk about the CIA's role after 9-11, obviously, you know, within days after the 9-11 tax, you know, Tenet was able to present a plan for invading Afghanistan to President Bush. They had plans on the table way before the Department of Defense. So, I mean, I think that's important to say, you know, their understanding of the situation in Afghanistan, the knowledge, the history of the CIA. You know, again, I think the CIA and Tenet's focus on al-Qaeda and bin Laden is irrefutable. And so I think, you know, perhaps he was the right person at that time to understand how the government needed to work together. And yet, you know, at the same time, <laughs> there was a failure there. And I think that's really important to acknowledge, to provide the warning that would have been needed to prevent those attacks. I think, I know George Tenet would say he absolutely provided warning that his hair was on fire, that the system was blinking red, all these sort of tropes that are in the report that we talk about these days. And absolutely, he was screaming about the threat from Al-Qaeda. And yet that tactical warning, which is so important, where an attack would happen, when, who, and so on, clearly there was a failure there. And the CIA bears a responsibility there, as does the FBI, as do other areas of government as well. I'm just thinking about some of the backstory of 9-11. So the embassy bombings in 98, USS Cole in 2000. I'm wondering if you can help us piece together the intelligence mosaic. You mentioned the FBI who have a particular role when it comes to intelligence or counterintelligence. We've got the CIA who have a particular role. How does the CIA fit within this broader mosaic? So thinking of the USS Cole, NCIA, IS, the FBI, help us understand the intelligence landscape that the CIA is a part of in that kind of period. Right. Well, I mean, obviously the CIA is responsible for foreign intelligence. Uh, CIA is not supposed to operate within the United States. The FBI is responsible for domestic intelligence, although the FBI does have stations abroad. It is domestic focused in that sense. I think what's important to understand in this period is that this idea of transnational terrorism is something that is new in the 1990s is just kind of starting up you know 
Cold War ends in 1989, right? It's a whole new era in the post-Cold War. Terrorism obviously had been around for a long time, but it was mostly thought of in terms of state-sponsored terrorism. So their understanding of terrorism from Iran, for example, and so on. So there's a growing understanding during the Clinton administration of this new idea of transnational terrorist network, something like Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda is not is a terrorist network. It's a group that is not sponsored by any particular state whatsoever. And you see that, that growing during the 1990s. And what it means is that this kind of disconnect between foreign and domestic becomes increasingly sort of unrealistic. They become much more entwined. And the U.S. intelligence community hadn't really been set up, I guess, for this new transnational age. Obviously, there's a growing understanding of it. Obviously, there is communication between these different elements of the intelligence community. But I think the extent to which they needed to work together, to which that threat was really entwined between the foreign and domestic, between that foreign and domestic actually became sort of an unrealistic idea that they were separate. That is something I think after 9-11 becomes absolutely obvious. There was a whole discussion that happened after 9-11 and during the course of the commission about a so-called wall between the FBI and the CIA. that They were not allowed to share information. That's not actually true, <laughs> but there are certain areas in which they weren't allowed to share information. And this has to do with the separate roles of these agencies. Obviously, the FBI is a uh, often looking at criminal matters and they weren't allowed to share particular information with other agencies. But there obviously wasn't enough sharing of information. There was some misunderstanding within the agencies themselves about how much information they were actually allowed to share. They were allowed to share information. They didn't know that they were. There were rivals between them and so on. And I think so. that is part of this intelligence landscape. But it has to do more with the understanding of the national security and national security threats in general and the way that the world was changing. So after 9-11, we live in an age now where information sharing became just a huge matter, where we've got something like the NCTC that was set up after 9-11, the National Counterterrorism Center, where we literally had analysts from all different parts of the national security, of national security in the government, FBI, CIA, Homeland Security, sitting in, this, in the same space, actually, sharing information, able to work together. That was something that was immediately recognized, you know, needed to be done. Opposite were people before 9-11 who saw the benefits of that. But really, the threat landscape changed and our government needed to change as well to respond to that. And one of the things that struck me when you were talking there was your training as a historian. Do you think that in the future, people are just going to look back on this and say, well, I mean, it's so obvious in retrospect, the whole structure of the world was changing, increasingly interconnected, not information society, knowledge economy, and these structures that were set up during the Cold War, of course they were lagging behind, of course they weren't sharing information. I guess I'm trying to say, how much do you think some of the individuals that are maybe part of this story that actions they didn't take led to this series of events and how much of it do you think can just be more on the structures? 
I think there are arguments to be made in both for both of those that, you know, there was institutional failure and individual failure as well. Obviously, they're linked. I think one of the interesting things is that uh, when the Bush administration comes in, they are, you know, they are certainly aware of Al-Qaeda. They're briefed about that, briefed about bin Laden by the outgoing Clinton administration. And yet, you know, they have a different view about terrorism and they have, they want to go through the motions of actually building up their own national security priorities and so on. And so this is this was a big argument, obviously, with the 9-11 attacks. Did the Bush administration drop the ball? We looked very, very closely at these briefing sessions during that transition from the Clinton to the Bush administration. What did Richard Clark, the counterterrorism czar at the NSC, what did he actually say to Condoleezza Rice? He says he told her, you know, Al-Qaeda is your number one priority here. Did Condoleezza Rice accept that? Did she believe that? Did they go along with that? And so on. And actually, something interesting happened to me on the commission. I was There was a sort of tasking that came down from Lee Hamilton. I'm not sure how it came to me, but it did, which was to look at speeches that President Clinton had made about terrorism and look at speeches that President Bush candidate Bush, mostly, had made about terrorism and sort of look at the way in which they talked about that threat. So I spent a couple of days reading all these speeches and writing up sort of a memo about it. And it was actually was a very, very clear difference. You could see through the Clinton administrations a growing understanding, again, of that transnational threat that we weren't talking about, you know, so much talking about Iran and North Korea. We were really talking about a group like Al-Qaeda, a non-state-sponsored threat. You can see that in his speeches and the way that he talks about threats. And if you look at the speeches of candidate. George W. Bush, he is really talking about state-sponsored terrorism, Iraq, obviously, Iran, North Korea, and so on. And, you know, it makes sense because his national security advisors were mostly from his father's administration, Dick Cheney, Don Rumsfeld, again, at, this is in, you know, post right after the Cold War, 88 to 92. This is a time when that was, you know, state-sponsored threat. That was really the way in which terrorism was was much more characterized. And he kind of, his administration saw the world through that lens. Now, I think you can see, obviously, throughout the administration, a growing understanding of the importance of transnational threats and so on. But to a large extent, that was their starting point when they came into office, which also there was a delay because of the extraordinary election of 2000, such that the transition period was shortened and they, the Bush administration was not able to get key people in place until a little bit later. And so by the time they're really kind of in place, starting to have these discussions at the deputies level, at the principals level about their foreign policy and national security priorities coming right up against 9-11. In fact, the first meeting of the principals the secretaries of state, defense, those positions happens on September 4th of 2001, you know, right before 9-11. So I think, you know, they did see the world a little bit differently or their, their getting up to speed, you know, happened in a different way. Their starting point was different. So I'm trying to remember your question now. We're going <laughs> back to okay. institutions versus individuals, right? Not and even institutions, even larger, much longer term like processes like globalization. We've went from an era of, as you say, state-sponsored terrorism to this transnational yeah. threat that's almost 
yeah, it's metamorphosized from something to something else. And of course, the institutions never saw it because yeah. no one really did. I mean, it's a good point. And I think for me, because I'm so focused on our investigation, but absolutely, as time goes by, and we look at this event, this extraordinary event in the broader sort of scope of history. Yeah, it fits in with that trend quite perfectly in a way. Yes. And I think it probably is maybe almost easier for us to understand why it took time to adapt to a new world now than it maybe it was at the time when this sort of, you know, seemed like such a something that was so new and happened so quickly. But you're right, you can see it developing over decades and continuing to do so, yeah. I know that you're really interested in ancient history and ancient <laughs> oh. Roman history. So <laughs> I guess yes. I'm just like trying to think about the commission report as a historical document. So imagine this was produced when Augustus takes power and then it's like, how do we go from the old Republic to Augustus? And it looks at the period from Caesar to Augustus. But actually, if you take a bigger lens, you can see that the political instability that Rome was under was, was something that had been a problem for a longer period of time. The way that generals would weaponize the political process for their own advancement was was also a longer term trend. So there was these longer term things that that led up to all the things that Caesar done within that. So there's this compressed, say, 30 year period that we're maybe talking about yeah. where you see this like pivot. But actually, that's just the speeding up of something that's been happening for a much longer time frame. So I guess I'm just trying to us just to kind of zoom out at the moment and think about the the commission report as like a historical right. you know document yeah i know it's difficult and <laughs> i'm not really sure where i'm going I, with some of me, this but it starts making me feel very I old <laughs> um, i think you're absolutely right I, I think there are also other ways to think about the report as a historical document i think i mean one of the extraordinary things that happened with the report and the commission was we had the commission had public hearings televised <laughs> where you could hear, for example, Director of Central Intelligence, George Tenet, being questioned by the commissioners about covert action. <laughs> That's really unprecedented. Asking the Director of Central Intelligence, again, anybody could watch this on TV anywhere in the world, by the way. And we know that, for example, there was a lot of people watching, let's say in the Middle East, about efforts by the CIA to capture or kill Osama bin Laden, <laughs> you know, that's pretty extraordinary to have that. I think, and again, for me, this this question of, of public oversight in a democracy of our intelligence, you know, to what extent does the, the American public have that right, have that responsibility to question the actions of their intelligence community, even about, you know, the most secret of activities like covert action, to put the director of central intelligence there in front of the commissioners and have them ask them questions about these incredibly secret classified operations. That's really unprecedented. And I think, how do you go back after something like that? How do you go back to, we don't want to ask questions secret, you know, American public doesn't need to know. I think I happen to think that's a really great service that the commission did, that we need to ask questions about this. We should expect our public servants, even in the intelligence community, to be ultimately responsible to the American public about our actions. I think that's incredibly important. And I think the commission's work has really opened up that door. 
this is a thread that I wanted to pull on anyway, but just thinking about it as a historical document, imagine I am a historian 300 years in the future and I come across this in a history class. We're going to study 9-11. So one of the things I want you to look at is this report where they ask these questions and so forth. So historian question 101, well, who was the executive director? This guy called Philip Zellico. Well, who was Philip Zellico? Well, he happened to be someone that had co-published with the National Security Advisor who may or may not have not paid full attention to a series of important memos saying that the system was blinking red and America was going to be attacked. Oh, and by the way, that same executive director went on to be Condoleezza Rice's counsellor when she became the Secretary of State. I mean... 300 years in the future, that's one of the first things that, you know, it's like, yeah, just to go back to the ancient world, you look at Caesar's, the Gallic Wars. Now, there is history in there, but there's also something else going on. So I guess the question is, as a historian, but also someone that was in the involved in the commission report, help us get a sense of that. Like, Yeah, I mean... I was very aware of that fact, and I think we were all very aware of that fact, of that potential conflict of interest, let's say, Philip's role, and so on. To take just a small step back, I think it's quite difficult to staff up something like this with qualified people, and very often somebody who has some real important depth of knowledge about policy making, about national security apparatus in the United States is going to have served in an administration, for example. So I think, you know, it's maybe impossible to find the perfect candidate who has no connections with anybody involved in this. That may have been, you know, that's probably that's way too much to ask. Then again, obviously, you know, the fact that he had served with Condi Rice, who happens to be National Security Advisor, you know, you think, well, goodness, couldn't you have avoided that? Yeah, I mean, yes, we were all very aware of that fact. And I mean, the only thing I can tell you, <laughs> I would tell you is that, I know that I, and I feel pretty confident actually speaking, at least for my colleagues uh, who are on my team, who I serve with, felt an enormous responsibility <laughs> to try to get this right. I think we all remember 9-11. We're all affected by 9-11, the opportunity to get to investigate this attack and to write a narrative to inform the American people about what happened I would take this incredibly seriously. I remember this was a very, very stressful period of my life, I have to tell you, at recognizing that what I wrote, you know, what I researched, the notes that I took, the questions I asked uh, to people, this was important. Uh, we had to get it right. We had really one chance here to get it right. And we took that seriously and were absolutely, absolutely determined to make sure that Everything that came out, whether it was a staff statement that came out to the public during the public hearings or made it into the report, was something that we considered to be accurate and not biased in one way or another. My team had public hearings, which I mentioned, where we had these principal figures, the Secretary of Defense in both the 
Clinton and the Bush administration, Secretary of State, National Security Advisor, and so on, where they had to got to be questioned by the commissioners in these public hearings. And we put out these staff statements as part of these hearings, which were sort of where we've come in our research basically now. And those sessions working on those went perhaps all night. <laughs> and we wrangled over every single word. I'm not kidding. Every single word that was in those, and that would be between my team, between Philip Zalico, our executive director, maybe other people who are senior figures. And of course, these were statements that came from the staff themselves, not from the commissioners. The report comes from the commissioners, but this was the staff's findings. And we really, yeah, there were many sleepless nights and really feelings of like, I don't know if I can live with myself if we let that phrase go into the staff statement. I'm going to go back and I'm going to have it out with Philip and we're going to change that. And all I can say to you is there is nothing that came out in those staff statements or in the report itself that I feel is um, that I'm comfortable with, which I don't think is accurate, that I think gives a wrong or warped sense of our research, our findings and how things happened. So I guess that's all I can say. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> I guess historians, historian of the future, looking back and saying, boy, look at Philip Zalikow, I would say, Commission isn't just Philip Zalico, it's also about 85 members of staff who were also were very committed to making sure that this was done properly. And just on that issue, you know, I don't want to spend too much longer on this, but it is an interesting issue that people have asked me. Yeah, I guess, did anyone, did you ever feel like anyone spiked your copy, as they say in journalism? Did anyone lean on you or did you feel like you were, that's kind of inconvenient, let's sweep that under the carpet? Not at all. No, I did not feel like that. As I said, I was doing research on the CIA. That meant I, for a period of time, I was going into to CIA headquarters every day and sitting in a, an office <laughs> by myself and going through boxes and boxes and boxes of documents. I don't want to say the CIA was uncooperative. That's not true at all. But I think they weren't going to give me anything if I didn't ask for it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so I don't think that's uncooperative. I think that was just there was caution there. But I don't remember there being any set of documents that we asked for that we didn't get. I don't remember thinking that uh, there were holes in document caches that I was getting. There were certain individuals who were a bit more closed than others, <laughs> who were a bit more careful in what they said than others, some quite understandably. There were some who insisted that they had their personal lawyers sitting in the room at the time. But I don't feel that there was information that we, we didn't get. And, and I have to say that since the report came out, the last... 16 or so, 16, 17 years. So I don't feel that there is really significant information that has come out that changes the story in any real way. Yeah, I think there are some nuances, as I said. I think there have been some individuals who have been a bit more forthcoming in what they've said, but I don't think that's true. So I would be very surprised, to be honest, if more information comes out that really changes the story. Some document or set of documents that was completely hidden, something like that. Some individual who says, I wasn't allowed to say, I've said there have been some of those stories. And I think when you look into it, there's really not much there. So no, I don't feel that. And I, again, I think one of the extraordinary things about the report is that maybe people don't quite fully recognizes this is the report is a completely declassified report there is no classified version and then declassified version as there is with most reports 
There is only one version of the 9-11 Commission report. You can buy it in any bookstore or find any library and it is completely declassified. And that was done very deliberately, not to want to come out with a report that people thought, oh, well, there's stuff that's hidden that I'll never know. It was very important to the commissioners that a report come out that everybody could read. And in a really, I think, probably unprecedented situation when we were finishing the report and there was quite a time crunch, by the way, we actually had representatives from each of the agencies involved who came to our offices and were doing sort of real-time declassification. And so if something I had written came back to me where they said, no, you can't say that, you're not allowed to say that, I could actually go and sit down with that person and say, okay, you won't let me say this. How about this? No, you can't say that. Or how about this? What if we change the sentence around? What if we change a different word? And so literally anything that had to be changed for classification purposes in the published report, members of staff had been able to sit down and go through that. And I don't recall anybody sort of who wasn't pleased with the final result or the felt that what actually came out in the report, that there was anything that was hidden, anything significant that was important. Obviously, there were names of individuals that had to be, weren't disclosed at the time that are now out. But those aren't things that were so important that they changed the story or changed the story about what actually happened there. So, no, I don't feel that. I, I feel that what you get in that report is is very much represents what we researched, what people told us and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think just finally on the Zelico thing, I think that for those historians in the future, I think that I hear what you're saying about there's a limited amount of people that can do this sort of stuff, but the optics aren't good when it's the when it's someone that's investigating the current sitting national security yeah. advisor. But anyway, you know, we actually interview. <laughs> you know, there was an interview with Philip Salico, actually, as well. <laughs> I'm not sure what level of classification that is. I'm sure it's in the National Archives. I don't know when that will come out. But that conflict of interest issue was certainly there. It was known. It was widely known. The commissioners knew about it, and we did try to deal with it in the best way we possibly could. But yeah, I acknowledge that. But I would just say, I think you can focus so much on Philip that you ignore everybody else. So you mentioned the amount of people on the commission. How many of you were there? I think by the time we finished, I think it had grown to somewhere around 80-ish, 85 or whatever. You know, people did get added as we went along, as uh, you know, there were areas where we knew that oh, we needed to put people on, but it ended up somewhere around that. And tell us a little bit more about that. Like, where were you all based? Did you all go out for drinks? Like, how long did it last? So we did have, a, there was an office in New York City where certain people were based, where it made more sense. Again, you know, there were was a team there that was investigating the emergency response on the actual day of 9-11, for example. I think members of those team were based there. Most people were based in Washington, D.C. We had two offices just for the space, government buildings where we were. But again, we had these teams. So there were certain teams in one office where I was. And, you know, obviously the the teams that maybe needed to work together more were in the same location and so on. A lot of the members of the staff were detailed from different areas of government, all agencies, that was important to have people obviously had that knowledge. And then there were people like, like me who were sort of outsiders, came from academia and so on. We had It was an extraordinary group of people. Obviously, it was one of the great privileges for me to work with those people and to get to meet really interesting people from all different areas with incredible sort of knowledge and, uh, and work side by side by them, with them. And how long did the work last? 
a little bit more than a year, yeah. But I think the entire life of the commission was probably about 18 months or something like that. Then eventually it did go back to the Spy Museum. Well, yes. I'm glad you came back. And Thank you. I can't believe we've been sitting on this story this whole time. Like, you know, <laughs> I don't know why, why this hasn't been a podcast like 10 years ago. But anyway, one of the things I was just thinking there, a lot of my research has looked at the Soviet-Afghan war and there's this argument about 9-11 and being blowback. So it's the unintended consequences of funding the Mujahideen and during the 1980s and that whole argument, you've sown the dragon's teeth and now Afghanistan's a failed state and America and the West ignore Afghanistan after it's done what they needed it to do and they'll leave it and they walk away and then they come back and George W. Bush even talks about this in his memoirs, Decision Points, America, we just walked away and left Afghanistan. So anyway, one of the things that I've thought a lot about is what thread we can draw from the Afghanistan war the Soviet Union was involved in through to 9-11 and, and also this idea of blowback. So this is stuff that I have had to deal with all the time and there's a whole variety of some people willfully misinformed, some people I think drawing the wrong conclusions from the evidence and so forth. But I just wondered if you had thought about that or if that's something that you looked at because the CIA were obviously very heavily involved in the, the Soviet-Afghan war and then after 9-11, the CIA are heavily involved again. And in fact, one of the few parts of the US government that still has some kind of eyes on Afghanistan is the CIA. So the CIA is one of the few constants in the story. So just help us walk through the connections between the CIA during the Soviet-Afghan war and the CIA afterwards and the idea of blowback. Again, it's sort of how far back does the 9-11 story begin? That's basically what you're talking about. And going back to the commission, you know, we had to pick a starting date. You know, we had to, when we were sort of making those very initial like document requests, you know, everything you've got about bin Laden from, you know, starting at this date, where do you start? And we had to make a decision about when to start. And we didn't go all the way back, right? You could go back to the sunny yeah, shears. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So you know, we had to pick a time. So we, we that sort of specific question that you're asking about, we just weren't able to go back that far. Although, you know, others have. And, I, you know, there was actually, we had a side sort of a contractor who was actually looking at the history of American counterterrorism efforts and looked into that. And that was sort of a bigger project that... that could accompany the report and put it in bigger context. They were looking more at that at question. But I think one of the things you mentioned was important that the one reason why the CIA actually um, was able to, you know, go into Afghanistan so quickly after 9-11 and have people on the ground there uh, was because they, you know, they had deep roots actually in Afghanistan that went all the way back to the 1980s, right? And that there were relationships there with tribal leaders and someone that, you know, that had been ongoing. And there were individuals like Hank Crompton, for example, you know, who had spent time with these people and there was a, there was trust, uh, there was a relationship there even during the 90s that the CIA was able to draw on and it's because of that experience that they had during the 1980s. But I think the record is, is pretty clear that after the fall of the Soviet Union, after the end of the Afghan-Soviet War, you know, to a large extent, this CIA with the United States withdrew. And I think 
in retrospect, was that a good idea, <laughs> right? But at the time, you know, there's it, it seemed like that was not a a priority threat area for the United States anymore. The Cold War was over. The Soviet Union had collapsed. The United States only has so many resources. In fact, you know, the resources of the of the CIA were diminished because it, it seemed like the threat had diminished and there could be other priorities. It didn't take too long to recognize that there were still threats in the world, but they were in different areas. In Somalia, for example, we had Yugoslavia, and we're in the 1990s. So I think it's understandable from a sort of broader perspective why Afghanistan wasn't a place where the United States would want to invest resources and people as it had done. And yet, yes, you know, we can see the consequences of US withdrawal, the rise of the Taliban, and so on. I believe a lot of work has been done, not by the commission, you know, in looking into whether the CIA directly, CIA funding in Afghanistan directly benefited Bin Laden directly benefited that rise of Al Qaeda and so on. And I don't believe that direct links have been found there. But I think it's inevitable to see that the Afghan successes against the Soviet Union, against a great power like that, obviously left lots of people who were all fired up, <laughs> had been fired up by that war, had been supported by the United States, and that, you know, they, the fight wasn't over necessarily for them. And we can see links between that and the rise of Islamist extremism and groups like Al-Qaeda and so on. And again, that longer historian's perspective is important in that sense. And this is the blowback that you're, you're talking about, you know, that there are unintended consequences, longer term consequences to the CIA's involvement in Afghanistan in the 1990s. Could anybody have anticipated where that would go and that that blowback would come directly to New York City and the Pentagon in 2001? But democracies are not always no, are not known for being that long sighted, right? In their in their policy decisions and so on. There are many good reasons for that, and resources are certainly one of them. I don't believe that the United States CIA directly funded Osama bin Laden and therefore bears responsibility for the attacks on 9-11. I'm pretty confident in saying, no, I don't believe that to be so. But obviously there's a much bigger context there. And there are nuances and so on of unintended consequences that did happen. Help us understand a little bit more of that landscape that's looking at Afghanistan before 9-11 at the CIA or that's looking at counterterrorism. So we've got Alex Station, we've got George Tennant, the director of Central Intelligence. Who are some of the other dramatis personae that are part of this story? Obviously, counter-terrorist standards, look, CTC is looking at terrorism issues globally, mm -hmm. not just in, in South Asia, not just in Afghanistan. So they've got a much sort of broader view. But Alexation is, is within that. So it's, again, it's Rich Blee, who is the who head of that before him, a gentleman named Jeff O'Connell. Yeah, I think that name's out there. All these names are out there now. So that's a really important center. And their support for Alex Station, the relationship between those individuals and George Tennant. And then, of course, they're within the Directorate of Operations. So that's another important area that in that CIA is basically operations and analysis and CTC and the head of the DDO, the director for operations, is, is Jim Pavitt at the time. So that relationship between all these individuals, Tennant and, and Jim Pavitt, Jeff O'Connell and Rich Blee, Mike Shore, these are all the 
important individuals. And again, you know, it's the role of Richard Clark over at NSE, the so-called counterterrorism czar. That's really important as well. And his relationship with George Tennant is really key to understanding all of what's happening yeah, before 9-11. He's an extraordinary person, real sense of melodrama and a really powerful person, but extremely smart and important in this area and big part of this story as well. There was a really dramatic moment during the course of the commission, during a public hearing when Richard Clark is part of the hearing and makes a, a wonderful televised, television-worthy moment where he, in his statement to the commissioner, says, and he's specifically speaking to the families of 9-11, and he says, you know, your government failed you and I failed you. It was a six o'clock news made moment, but I, you know, it was really, I remember seeing that and feeling like sort of a shiver go down my spine. But for a senior sort of government official to say that publicly was really quite a moment. And I think it meant a lot to the families. It was really, really quite something. And I think it was important. A lot of people did not like. Richard Clark for doing that. But I think that was one of the most dramatic moments of this whole investigation. And is there a 9-11 Commission alumni network in Washington? Do you meet up for drinks occasionally uh, yeah, or something? Do, or, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we do. We do. You know, my team, we were team three and we were really quite close. And uh, we used to have little team three uh, kind of reunions and get together. Yeah, yeah. No, we do have a little, a little network of people and we sort of keep up with each other. One of my colleagues on team three is uh, actually moving back to D.C. Uh, in the next couple of weeks. I just talked to him last night and I'm so excited uh, to have him here and it'll be great to sort of get the gang back together again. So yeah, we do have reunions. We had a reunion actually on the 10th anniversary of the commission report coming out in 2014, which was wonderful with the commissioners as well. And that was really, was great to see. Some people have gone on to do fascinating things in and out of government. And yeah, it was really great. The commissioners are, are a part of this as well, which is, is incredibly important. Uh, two of them passed away last year, which is really, really very sad because there's, they were some great individuals and with great sort of knowledge of, of, of the commission and in general. So unfortunately, we're losing some of these people as they get older. I think we're really lucky to have them. So yeah, I think there's something amongst all of us commissioners and staff that we still sort of feel we had a, a shared experience. And I think we're always happy, happy to hear from each other. Because we're talking about Lee Hamilton and Thomas Kane, I want to come back to the issue of should there be a commission style report for the, the pandemic that we're in at the moment. But just when you mentioned those names, Lee Hamilton, I mean, I interviewed him a couple of years ago and he was a real old school class act, bipartisan, lots of integrity. I mean, you know this better than me, but... Yeah, it just struck me that, I don't know, could a bunch of commissioners of a similar ilk come together today to work on something collaboratively? I mean, everything just seems so yeah, divided and yeah. partisan. I mean, yeah, the, the Lee Hamiltons of the world are kind of falling by the wayside. And now the way to get ahead is just to sort of go as far out on whatever wing you're on. 
Yeah, I, it is hard to imagine that type of bipartisanship happening these days. It's incredibly sad because I think it's it's needed so much, so much. I, I've thought about this because there's been a lot of talk about a 9-11 style commission looking into the January 6th events and thinking about the lasting legacy of the commission. There are the recommendations which have had a, a you know an impact as well, but I think the narrative that the commission was able to produce the actual report, the book, which was written in readable language for the American public so you could go to a bookstore and pick it up. I remember right after the report came out during the summer of 2004, seeing somebody reading the 9-11 Commission report on the beach, you know, like summer reading. I was like, wow, it's amazing. But the fact that I think for me, it showed like people wanted to read this. They wanted to read a compelling, clear narrative of what happened why 9-11 happened, you know, what happened before, what was our government doing, what happened on the day, how did we respond? I think there were a lot of questions, you know, that needed to be answered. And I think to a large extent, the commission's report fed that, that need and, and fulfilled it. I'm not saying there aren't still questions open, but they provided a clear, compelling narrative for the American people to understand this traumatic event. Is it possible to produce that same kind of thing? Because the only way that narrative is really going to fulfill the role, fill the hole that I think is there, is if people trust the people who are producing that. If they if they think that this is an unbiased report done by people who's who just really wanted to find out the facts and what happened. And then that goes back to who's going to serve on this, who the commissioner is going to be, who's going to head it up and so on. So... I like to think that we can find those people and that and that they can produce a narrative that can be trusted because I, I do think it's needed. On the commission, what is the rest of the intelligence landscape like on the commission? So you mentioned the C, you're doing the CIA, you've you mentioned the NSC and state. I'm being slightly flippant here, but is there one representative for every intelligence agency or does someone have okay, you're doing the NSA and the DIA and someone's doing NCIS and OSI. Like, yeah, what's the rest of, did you have intelligence? Were you at for intelligence? Right. So, I mean, it goes back to the story that we were trying to tell. So I was on a team that was looking at, it was on the policy team. So we were really supposed to be trying to tell the policy story of what the U.S. government was doing. So so I was looking at CIA inter policy terms. What are the CIA doing to support counterterrorism efforts by the U.S. government? There was a completely separate team, actually, that was looking at the intelligence community in a different way with an eye to were there institutional problems and very much with an eye to the recommendations with regard to the intelligence community or that were out there, there were being, you know, as I said, there were calls for you. Do we need to dismantle the FBI? <laughs> Does the CIA need to be completely revamped and so on? So that was a completely separate team. I did work with them because, of course, you know, we have all kinds of things that were people that we interviewed in common and so on. But on that team, there was somebody who was looking at NSA. Obviously, they're looking at CIA. They're looking at different parts of the community. Actually, it was a totally separate team that was focused on the FBI, looking at their story and looking at their structure and so on. So I worked with them as well where appropriate. So that we sort of, and it actually goes back to the mandate of the commission. It's all sort of delineated as to all the different areas and the teams were 
structured to address those different areas. So there were different individuals who were looking at different parts of the community. But again, my story was much more to do with the policy, the storyline, and not so much to do with looking at the institutions and so on, and other people were focused on that. Okay. Wow, that's fascinating. And I'm glad I asked that. And yeah. Maybe that's the launch point for part two. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> the International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 non-profit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and would like to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information.